Welcome to On the Way with Tony Crisp. Each weekday, Dr. Crisp will be discussing biblical passages, people, places, and prophecies. Tune in daily to start your day right and deepen your understanding of how to better walk the way and enjoy the journey. Here's your host, Dr. Tony Crisp. Welcome to On the Way. This is Tony Crisp, and this is the 365 Bible Reading Plan. Today is July the 27th, and our chapter for today is Matthew chapter 7. Judge not that you be not judged. Man, do we hear that a lot. Anytime that somebody hears someone say something that is the least bit critical as a Christian, they will say, oh, I just don't like these judgmental Christians. They talk about people's sin and they are judgmental as could be. And let me tell you, sometimes Christians can be followers of Jesus can be very critical. But sometimes we are accused of being critical and of being judgmental when we're just telling the truth about sin. You see, we get the idea that Jesus is saying here that we should have no discernment. We should never judge between what is right and what is wrong. And that's just simply not what this passage is saying. When he says, judge not that you be not judged, you got to read the remainder of the verses because there were no verses or chapter divisions in the original text. This is the statement, judge not that you be not judged for this reason. For what judgment you judge with, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. And why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but do not consider the plank in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me remove the speck from your eye and look, a plank is in your own eye. You hypocrite. First, remove the plank from your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Now, the issue is not whether the speck or the plank needs to be gotten out. They both do. But this whole passage started with the idea of censorious judgment. That is being critical and censorious and censoring other people, to use a more common term, canceling other people when you are doing the very same things that you're accusing others of. This is happening in our culture, not only outside the church, but inside the church. It is amazing. And we have made it to where you can't say anything as far as judgment upon sin without being canceled or without being accused of not loving people, of being a hater. You say, well, I don't go along with a homosexual lifestyle and homosexuality sin. You hater, you. Oh, how could you say that? Or you say in a more recent instance, people said, well, you know, you can't say anything about a person's skin color. You can't say anything about the fact that there are more black people in prison than there are white people, because we believe that there needs to be equal amounts of black and white and red and yellow in prison. Well, this is just idiotic. Sin is sin no matter what color your skin is. Homosexuality is sin, adultery is sin, lying is sin, worshiping a false god is sin. We go right down the line of the Ten Commandments and 50 others. You see, the results of sin are different, but sin is sin. 
And if we can only be criticized and called out by people who are perfect, then we will never preach against sin ever again. And that's what the devil wants. He's got the church of Jesus as confused as a termite and a yo-yo. And the reason is, is because we don't know which way's up or which way's down because we don't know the book of God. We don't know the word of God. This passage is simply saying, don't be so censorious in your judgment. And don't be critical of others if you are involved in the same thing yourself. It doesn't matter who you are. And so what Jesus is simply saying is, tend to your own knitting first before you try to fix someone else's. And then he goes on to say, if you need something from God, if you desire something from God, if you have something that you need to bring before God, he says, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you shall find. Knock and it shall be opened to you. Now, does that mean that everything you ask for, everything that you knock on God's door and ask for, that the Lord's going to give it to you? Absolutely not. But he said, if you have a need in your life, he doesn't say ask and just let it go. No, what he's talking about is fervency. Why? Because this is in the present tense. If I could translate this for you in the mode and the tense, it would say definitely keep on asking. Keep on asking. Not just once, but keep on. It's present tense. Keep on seeking. Keep on knocking. Why would he say that? Because you see, if something is on your heart, something is in your heart, you cannot get away from it. You are passionate about it. Then you're going to continually be praying and seeking God about it. That's what God wants us to do. Oftentimes in prayer meetings, even in churches, people say, I'd like for you to pray for so-and-so. Well, they hadn't been praying for him. They just thought that you needed to know that we all need to pray for him. Many times now when I am in a small or a large group and we're going to uh, request prayer for specific needs, I will preface everything I'm saying by saying, share with us something that you have been praying for earnestly and daily over a course of, of time or that you have been passionately praying about on a continual basis yourself. Would you share that with us? Well, I'll tell you, that cuts down on the prayer request in a hurry. Or if you say, before God, can you honestly say that you've been praying on a regular basis, not ever now and then, not hit and miss, but you've been passionately praying and desiring for God to answer prayer on behalf of someone else? Would you share that with us if you have the liberty to do that? It cuts down on it. You know why? Because people are not doing that. This is what verses 7 through 12 is talking about. And look at verse 13. I mean, the Lord just keeps on talking and getting into our business. He says, enter in at the narrow gate for wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to what? Destruction. And there are many who go in by it. By what? By the broad way, because narrow is the gate and difficult is the way which leads to life. And there are few who find it. Now, is that true or is that just Jesus speaking in hyperbole? No, it's true. You see, most people in the city I live in and most people in the city you live in are lost. They're wondering. They don't know God. They don't walk with God. 
And the reason is, is because the Bible teaches that few are going to be saved in relation to the population. It's a low ratio. Now think about it. This is true of our families. Oh, you say, well, all my immediate families saved. Well, that's not all your family. You see, it is a rare thing for most of a family who gets together to be saved if it's a family reunion. It's very unusual. But if you took the, even in families where most at a family reunion would be saved, that's probably a small portion of the family. The reality is Jesus is right every time. And the Bible says narrow is the way. Difficult is the way. Now, narrow is the word flebo, which means to be between a uh, two walls that are pressing in on you. It's a narrow way. Not many are going to press through. You say, well, are you saying it's difficult to be saved? No, it's difficult to come to the point to where you feel like you really need to be saved because we fight that with everything that's within us. Now, it's very natural for a child to be leadable and to come to the Lord and to have faith. But the older we get, the more jaded we get and the more difficult it is to humble ourselves before God. On a relative scale, it's very few. See, a lot of people make a decision when they're a child, and they're not any more saved than I was when I was a child, and I was lost. Now, I'm not talking about before a person knows his right hand from his left, before a person knows what it means to be saved. See, I was on up really as a teenager before I understood what it really meant to be saved because it was then before I understood that it was more than just asking Jesus into your blood pumper. That's not what being saved is. Being saved is giving at the time everything you know to everything that he is. You say, well, kids can't know that. Well, then kids that don't know that then they are safe in the arms of Jesus. But when that period is, and it's different for different people, but the moment you come to understand that you are a sinner and you are you have truly offended God and that you are on the other side fighting against God, you say, well, you don't have to understand. Well, you have to understand something of it. Because you see, being saved is more than asking Jesus into your heart. You say, well, I don't believe that. Well, then you don't believe the Bible. The Bible says repent, change your heart, change your mind, change your direction. And you have to be old enough and accountable enough to be able to know what that means in order to be saved. You say, well, I trust it as much as I know. Well, there is a modicum of knowledge you have to know in order to be saved. Enter in at the narrow gate. You say, well, I, I don't agree with it. That's okay. I'm just telling you, before you understand enough to be saved, then you're just fine. But when you understand, listen to me, whether you're in communist China, the moment you respond to light, God will give you more light. You're not just saved knowing there is a God. But if you truly seek to know that God, God will get the gospel to you. I truly believe that. Because the more that a person turns away from light, the darker it gets. But if a person will just say God, I know you're there, or in their heart say, I want to know you, God will give them more light. And if they walk in that light, God will give them more light. But let's say you grow up in a Christian home. What is the basis for understanding what it means to be saved? As I read the Word of God, the very basis for understanding how to be saved is knowing you're a sinner and understanding something of the substitutionary nature of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. 
You see, if you are not knowledgeable enough and don't have enough knowledge to understand how to be saved, you can't be saved. You have to understand that you are a sinner in need of a Savior. And you have to understand, listen to me, you have to understand that Jesus died in your place. Now, you may not can spell substitute, you may not know substitute, but you have to understand the concept. Because in order to be saved in the Old Testament and the New, you have to understand something of substitutionary sacrifice. That one died in your place to pay for the sins of another. And the blood of bulls and goats and rams and lambs can never do that. Now, I don't want to make you doubt your salvation. I don't want you to do that. But please understand that the Lord Jesus himself is the one that said, narrow is the gate. And few there be that find it. I can sum this up best like this. Do you know that you're a sinner? Have you surrendered your life to Jesus Christ? When did you do that? I'm not talking about the the date on the calendar. I'm talking about when did you do that? You say, well, I don't know. Well, then you're probably not saved. Well, I've never had an experience like that. Well, then you're probably not saved. Why would I say that? Because you have to be conscious of a decision when you passed from death unto life. You have to be able to understand that you are a sinner in need of a Savior and that Jesus has become precious to you. You say, well, I've been an adult and I've been in the church all my life and I made a decision as a child, but I lived for my own self until I was 35, 40 years old. And then I really understood what it meant. And I rededicated my life to Jesus and my life has been eternally changed since then. Well, let me just tell you, you need to start using some new language. You didn't rededicate your life if you were living your own life before that time up to 35, 40, and you, quote, rededicate your life to Jesus. What you need to do is be immersed as a believer because what happened to you is you were saved. That's right. Because you are saved when Jesus becomes precious to you, when he becomes your life, when he is the Lord of your life. When he is the lover of your soul and you love him with everything that's within you. I'm not talking about your love growing cold. I'm not talking. I'm talking about when you, the moment you give your life to Jesus, you know it. And you know that you can never be the same, think the same. You can never walk the same. You can never talk the same. Oh, you might have lapses from here to there, but you know in your heart that you gave your life away to Jesus. That's what being saved is. And let me just tell you, everybody that says unto me, Lord, Lord, is not going to enter in the kingdom of heaven. I didn't say that in this very chapter. In this very chapter, Jesus said that. Yes. Verse 21, not everyone who says unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter in the kingdom of heaven. Well, who is it that's going to do that? The one who does the will of my father. Jesus said, this is the will of God that you believe in him, that you trust in him whom the father has sent. That's the way a person's saved. And many will say, well, Lord, we did this. We cast out demons. We prophesied. We preached. We did this. If you're trusting in that to save you, even if it did happen, that's not going to save you. Only Jesus saves. For on the way, this is Tony Crisp. Thanks for listening to On The Way with Tony Crisp. Tune in every weekday for information on biblical passages, people, places, and prophecies. Fridays are for your questions. 
Email your questions to questions at TonyCrisp.org. Then just listen for your question to be answered on Friday's podcast. That's questions at TonyCrisp.org. Thanks for listening and have a blessed day on the way.